Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Bring your greetings for the first time from Burlington, from our 25 to 26 people there. Well, today is the 12th day of the first month, so everyone is all excited for the beginning of Passover tomorrow evening something we look forward to every year. Over the course of history, mankind has developed an increased understanding in the power of blood. Man has come to know from very early on in his history just how vital to life blood is. It didn't take long early on in history for man to discover some of the functions of blood, the fact that it supplies oxygen, to our tissues, but it does much more than that. It supplies nutrients to various parts of our body. It also removes waste. It also helps to heal the coagulating nature of blood when we get cut, helps to heal those cuts. It also regulates certain things like uh, the pH levels and body temperature. And that is my extent of my medical knowledge right there. But as science has developed over the course of centuries, it has become even more important, the extent of blood. It wasn't just what used to be one of the four body liquids, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood, back in early, early history. It was the four humors, I believe they called them. But now it became that you could have disease based on different types of blood, whether the volume of your blood was lower or higher than it should be, whether the viscosity or thickness of the blood was lower or higher than it normally should be, whether there are are too many red blood cells or not enough red blood cells or too many white blood cells or not enough white blood cells. If anything in the blood changes, whether it be the makeup of the blood, the viscosity of the blood, the volume of the blood, you're prone to sickness. So mankind's understanding of what makes up blood also has changed over the years. It turned from that we all have red blood to in the study in between 1900 and 1930, two separate scientists and separate studies, one Austrian by the name of Karl Landsteiner and one Czech by the name of Jan Jansky, discovered that there were three blood types, A, B, and O, which we're familiar with now. Later on, in 1937, the Austrian, Karl Landsteiner, working with a couple of other scientists, you might recognize the first name, Rhesus, Rhesus Macaque, and Alexander Wiener, discovered that there was an additional factor in, that distinguished blood. And this became known as the Rhesus factor, and that's where we get our positive and negative types of O, B, and A. And this information has led over the course of the last several decades to discovering additional antibodies And here is where I'm simply reading verbatim what I studied. I know nothing about this. There are a couple of doctors here that could probably correct, fill in some of the blanks if you're that curious. Discovering that that there's additional antibodies in different types of blood to the point where there are now 30 different blood groupings and 600 different combinations of blood factors. So over the course of history, what was just a red liquid that flowed through our bodies is now very intricate and very specific and determines how well we live 
how sick we are, amongst other factors. In Revelation 13 and in verse 8, there's a scripture, a phrase that is one of the key phrases in the plan of God. You'll recognize it when you turn there, Revelation 13 and in verse 8. It's one of the, everything in scripture is obviously important, but this is one of the key scriptures in understanding the plan of God. It has a lot of ramifications as you study God's word and as you become more familiar with the plan of God. The phrase in the last half of Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 that says, and whose names, well, read the, we'll read the whole verse, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was a plan that was in the works from the very foundation of this world, from the very beginning of creation. But have you ever wondered and asked yourself, why? Of all the ways God could have chosen to save the world, of all the possibilities that he could have come up with, created, thought, dreamt up, he chose to do it through the shedding of the blood of his son. Having his son come down, take on the form of a human being, and shed his blood to save the world. But before he did so, the ensuing 4,000 years that led up to that point were spent teaching God's people this very, very valuable lesson. There is life in the blood. And before he could send his son down, we had to understand that very valuable lesson, that there is life in the blood. With Passover just a day or so away, I would like to take the rest of the time this morning to look at the biblical history of the blood sacrifice and answer the all-important question, why? Why use the sacrifice of blood in conjunction with the forgiveness of sin? We have staked our very lives on this fact when we accepted that shed blood of our Savior. It makes sense to know why. So as we start, let's go back to Genesis chapter 4. This was not, as we will see, something that an idea that came into existence when the first lamb was slain before the first Passover for Israel. The idea of life in the blood and the sacrifice of blood in conjunction with the forgiveness of sin dates back to the start of history, all revolving around the fact that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. Going back to Genesis chapter 4, this of course is the account of the first murder when Cain murdered Abel. And we'll pick it up in verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? You'll recall that him and his brother offered two different offerings to God. Abel's was accepted. Cain's was not. And Cain became angry, as you can read back there in verse 5. So God has a conversation with him. Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire... The desire of sin is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain, in talking with his brother Abel, one day came to pass. They were in the field, and he didn't control himself. The anger got the best of him. 
His emotions got the better of him. He rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then God said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. I have no idea. Am I really my brother's keeper? And then verse 10, God says something profound. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The very first drop of shed human blood cries out to God. God hears the shedding of innocent blood. From the very beginning of time, he hears the shedding of innocent blood. And it is such an impact on him that it's like it is crying out to him. He can hear, he can hear the blood crying from the ground when it has been shed in an innocent way. Flip forward a few pages to chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. And Noah and his family have just come through the flood where all of mankind, with the exception of Noah and his three sons and their wives, were saved on this ark. It has come to rest. And now God is about to lay the ground rules for the restart, for Noah's restart set by the Creator. So let's start there in verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same command he gave Adam and Eve. So the command, their expectations never changed. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air on all that move on all the earth, and of all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely your lifeblood, I will, dema- I will demand, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. From the image of God he has made man, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply in it. The shedding of blood was crucial to God. He requires a life for a life. He states so here in his very setting of the ground rules for Noah, that as they can as they develop an existence, as they reset the ground rules, as they try to restart mankind off on the proper foot that he had intended from the beginning, there is life in the blood. And when blood is shed, God requires a life in return. But why? We still haven't answered that question. There's life in the blood. And the shedding of blood is a very, very serious matter to God right from the beginning of time. We see it the account of Cain and Abel, and we see it here in the account with Noah as God is restating the ground rules. He alone gives life. Only God gives life, and only he has the right to revoke it. So now let's go to Leviticus chapter 17 and dig into some of the details of the blood sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 17. As we see another group of chosen people being offered a chance to start over 
and walk with God. It's a running theme through Scripture. But here's another group of people chosen by God, being offered a chance at a restart and a chance to follow God again. But this time he goes into some very specific detail on how blood was to be treated by the people. He started out with Noah and explained a little bit, but here for Israel, he goes into some specific detail. And the Lord said to, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, we're in verse 1, Leviticus chapter 17. Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. So if we're going to kill an animal just for the sake of killing an animal, there had better be something had be brought to the temple and offered to God, or there shall be a guilt of bloodshed, just like he spoke to Noah about this guilt of blood, bloodshed imputed to this man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord and at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. There shall no more, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And also you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. Another group of people, verse 10, and whatever man of the house of Israel or the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, so another a different fact here, whoever eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Blood is so important that God specifically directs the use of blood. That he has given it to us. There is, we have life because of blood. The blood flowing through us is what gives us life. And he's using it again here. As, and we'll see that it, this isn't the start. But here he's specific to the people of Israel that it makes atonement for their souls. That this a blood of an animal in the hands of a priest spread at the altar can make atonement for our souls because there is life and blood. Therefore, verse 12, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. And whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. If you're going to hunt, if you're going to kill an animal for purposes of eating, the blood is still sacred. It's not meant in this case for a sacrifice, but you must bury it. You must dig a hole, bury the blood, and cover it up. Because the blood is used for one thing. Two things. Life and sacrifice. Life and atonement for our, our sins. But he's obviously given us animal flesh to eat. And when it is required that we shed the blood to prepare a meal, the blood here is very specific. It must be covered. 
He shall pour out his blood and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood, and whoever eats, it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what died, what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. God wanted to teach his people that blood was so important, it had to be dealt with properly. If you needed forgiveness, if you needed to atone for your sins, then you would sacrifice, bring it to the priest, and it could be sprinkled on the altar. If you were to kill it for food, the blood must be drained and buried. We don't eat blood. I have no idea of the medical ramifications, whether there is health in blood. I, I suspect not. This is, I'm off on a tangent here. But the reason we don't eat blood is because blood is sacred to God. Blood has specific use. To give life and to offer up for sin, to offer atonement for sin. And that is why we don't eat blood. That is why blood is treated very respectfully and very specifically by God. So why go into such detail in his explanation? He's covered it off here in just this one chapter, and there are other places too. We won't go into all the intricacies of of the blood, but suffice to say, as we've read here, that blood was very important, and he's very detailed. So why does God go into such detail in his explanation? He's just gone through several descriptions of various sacrifices used to cover the sins of the people. And again, we don't have time to go into extreme detail on all the nuances of all the sacrifices, what you do here, what you do there. But I'd like to take a quick look at a couple back in Leviticus chapter 4. Because we learn more about the importance of blood back here in Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4 and in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of God in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, uh, which he has sinned a young bull without blemish, as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood, bring it into the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull At the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, he shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering, the fat which covers the entrails, and all of the fat which is on the entrails, the kidneys, and the fat which is on them by the flanks. He continues to to discuss all the various body parts. As it was taken from the bull, verse 10, of the sacrifice of the peace offering, the priest shall bring them on the altar of the burnt offering. So here, this here, God is talking about an unintentional sin. If someone commits a sin unintentionally, simply kill a bull and follow these procedures with the blood, and God will forgive. This is a a way of making atonement for this unintentional sin. 
Verse 13. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel, not just a specific person or the priest, but if the whole congregation of Israel this time sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of my commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which has been committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. We won't belabor and continue with the details. They're quite similar to the original details in the first passage. But here this is if the whole congregation commits a sin unintentionally. And once it becomes known, there's a provision for making atonement through the offering of blood. Verse 22. When a ruler now, here's a third instance, when a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God in anything which should not be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it at the place where they killed the burnt offering before the Lord. And it is a sin offering. And again, more details on what to do with the blood and how this killing of this male goat, this male kid, will provide atonement for the sins of a ruler. But again, unintentional sin by another, by a, a specific person in the assembly covered and made atonement with the blood of an animal. Verse 27, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And again, unintentional sin by any of the people in the assembly of Israel, whether it be common people, whether it be the congregation as a whole, whether it be as a specific ruler or a priest, there's provision for atonement of sin through the shedding of the blood of an animal. Unintentional sin covered by the blood of a lamb. Leviticus chapter 6. We won't, this entire sermon will not be held in the book of Leviticus for those of you. We'll just stay here for a little bit longer. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 24. Here God recaps the law of the sin offering. He's gone through a lot of detail, but here he provides a bit of a recap in verse 24. Also, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord, and it is most holy. God has set apart an animal chosen, to be sacrificed for the atonement of sin and has made it holy. Therefore, what God says to do with the blood and to do with the flesh must be adhered to because it is holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. Everyone who touches its flesh must be holy. And when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash that you shall wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place. But the earthen vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken, and if it is boiled in a bronze pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed in water, and all the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy. But no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. Specifically, that which is brought in as a sin offering shall not be eaten, because it is the blood of that animal that is, that is the focus of the offering. And it is that blood 
that must be the, the use of the blood that must be followed specifically. We won't read Leviticus 16, but I'd like to draw your attention to it. So if you turn to Leviticus chapter 16, we will not read this, but it is the describes the Day of Atonement, the holy day that we keep in the fall, one of the holy days we keep in the fall of the year. And it is the single time of the year, if you take time to go through the account of Leviticus chapter 16, it was the single time of the year where only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, the most holy place within the, within the tabernacle. It was the single time of the year where he could enter and sprinkle blood from a bull to symbolically cover the sins of him and his family. And the blood of, the, of a goat was used. He also killed the blood, killed a goat and used the blood of a goat to symbolically cover the sins of the people. So for that single time of the year, he killed a bull to cover the sins of his family and himself. He used the blood of a goat to cover the sins of the people. And then cast the sin symbolically onto the head of another goat. But again, blood sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. It is a theme that we see in Genesis, carried right through in very much detail here, to this people of Israel as they get to know their creator and get a new start on following him. Remember that the blood was to be sprinkled onto the mercy seat. Part of the details here in Leviticus 16, the blood was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat covered, symbolically, the throne of God. And underneath was the Ark of the Covenant, including in which was the tablets, the Ten Commandments. So, all the way back in the Old Testament, when God first stated all the rules for atonement of sin, blood was on the mercy seat, and mercy covered the law. The onerous, ogreous God that is sometimes portrayed in the Old Testament, from the beginning of time, had a, had a way for mercy to cover law. We're starting to see a continuous theme develop that Israel was first exposed to on the evening of the first Passover, when the shedding of the blood of an innocent lamb symbolically placed on the doorposts of the home elicited the mercy of God when he sent the death angel to the land of Egypt. The shed blood of the innocent could cover the sins of a people and provide a way out of a sure sentence of death. Genesis 4, Genesis 9, Exodus 12, all the way through Leviticus. And continuing on through Scripture, the shed blood of the innocent covers the sins of a people and provides a way out of a sure sentence of death. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. Because over the course of time, Israel was taught that this entire process pointed to a very special sacrifice to come in the future. These 4,000 years of various lessons was not just some way for a, a God being to have some fun with his people and watch as they go about trying to follow his little rules. These were specifically designed to point to a very special sacrifice that would come in the future. But without understanding the, the impact of the blood sacrifice, this special sacrifice would not carry any weight. So it, it, he used these millennia of time before the coming of this special sacrifice 
to teach this spe- the specialness of the blood sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 53, we'll start in verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. This is obviously pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You recall one of the punishments back in Genesis 3 was that the, uh, he would bruise his heel, but he would bruise his head. This is pointing to between uh, uh, Satan, the serpent, and Christ. Foreshadowed this very thing. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased God to bruise him. It pleased God to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the displeasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So through the writings of this prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before it actually happened, there's starting to be a change in mindset as God works through his prophets, because all of Israel for hundreds and thousands of years knew that it was the shedding of the blood of an animal that could make atonement this year for sin, for this year. But next year, we have to do it again. But now here, we're hearing about this special sacrifice of this man who sinned not, yet would pour out his life, the lifeblood would be poured out for the transgression of the sins of all people. And there's a little bit of a mindset change as God starts to teach his people the real meaning for the blood sacrifice. The dynamic of the blood sacrifice was about to change. The former sacrifices that we read about allowed for Israel's sins to be covered so they could continue in the presence of God. For them to continue this year, they had to sacrifice these animals, make atonement for sin so they could continue in God's presence. But much like a fresh paint job simply covers over the marks, those of you who've done any painting, it just covers over the marks and makes the wall look nice. The marks are still underneath the paint. They're just covered over. The sins of the people were still there, and they had to do the same thing next year because the sins were still there. They were covered over. It was like they were glossed over, 
It's like they were painted red, and God had this red, clear plastic film on. Now, he can't see their sins. So okay, he continues them to be. Looks through this red, clear plastic film. Because they're covered in, the sins are covered over in this blood, He's, he can't see the sins, so he continues to allow them to be in his presence. But the sins are still there. The sins were still there. They were simply covered. The special sacrifice that Isaiah talks about here, it tells us in verse 6, would allow for the sins to actually be removed from the ledger of the person who committed them and placed on the head of the innocent man. They're now no longer covered, they're removed. But this still doesn't answer the question of why blood. Why God chose to use blood as the basis for this entire lesson. Why did God use the shedding of life blood to cover sin? To understand this requires us to understand the impact of sin in the relationship of man and his creator. So let's go forward a little bit and take a tangent here off and look at the impact of sin between man and the Creator. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 59, just a few chapters later. Isaiah 59. Because the prophet Isaiah here explains the impact of sin clearly and concisely in these two verses. We'll read three. Isaiah 59. Verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. God, it's not impossible for God to do anything that he cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sin, have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue has muttered perversity. Remember how important God said from the beginning blood was to be, to be held? Well, over the course of the, action of their, uh, the actions of God's people, they became defiled by this blood. Whether it be through murder, hatred, all of the breaking of the commandments, their hands became defiled by blood. And it was this sin that separated them from God. It drove a wedge between God and his people. Back, and we'll, see a little, we'll explain a little bit more here, but back when man was first created, there was nothing between man and God. But over the course of time, what sin does is it causes a separation. Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back and continue this look at the impact of sin on our relationship with God. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 verse 26. We'll start there. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps onto the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. And to you it shall be for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. So again, a connection of life and blood. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Man, the epitome of the creation of God, 
was in a garden, a perfect paradise, in complete unity with his creator, and a future of being made just like him, in image and in likeness, living in complete paradise, with simple instructions to take care of the creation and to help build a family. God explained his will, and as long as man's will remained in lines with his creator's, as we see here, all was good. It was all good. Our will in line with God, when we understand what God wanted us to do, and he created us in this, this idyllic setting, it was all good. Everything was great. So let's break away just for a moment and look at this concept of being in accordance with God's will. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. For it is understanding being in, this being in accordance with God's will that will help us understand the separation that sin causes. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21. The words of Jesus the Christ himself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done wonders in your name, done all of these great things, and we've done it in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. When we do the will of the Father, when we do the will of God, there's unity. But when we don't, he shuns us. He pushes us away. I never knew. I never knew you. you. You said you did all these things in my name, but you didn't. You didn't know my will. Your will wasn't in line with mine. He says he'll say to say to them, "I never knew you. Depart from me. Get away. Be separate. Do the will and be in His presence forever. Practice lawlessness or sin and be removed or separated from His presence." Matthew chapter 12. We see the same concept. Described just a different way. Matthew chapter 12. We'll pick it up at the verse 46. Matthew 12, verse 46. While he, Christ, was still talking to the multitudes. That's Matthew 12, 46. Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. So he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards the disciples and said, Here is my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that is my brother, that is my sister, and that is my mother. When we do the will of God, we become his family. When we do the will of God, he, he likens us as part of his own. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. One of the famous seven last sayings of Christ. Matthew chapter 27. Verse 45. Matthew 27 verse 45.
Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, again as he was hanging there, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even the Son of God himself, once he took, as Isaiah described in chapter 53, all of the sins of mankind upon his shoulders, felt this separation from the Father that sin brings. Once he became sin, once he took all of our sins upon himself, the Father had to walk away. And Christ felt that when he, however it was that he saw or felt God at that point, the Son of God himself felt that separation. And it was unfelt emotion that he'd never felt, it seems, before this, brought on by the separation. Up until this point, he had never been separated from the Father. He had spent eternity in unity with the Father. And yet here, for this, this period of time where he took our sins upon himself, there was a forced separation because sin separates people from God. Even the Son of God, when he became sin, had to be separated from his father. There was no choice because that was, the, that was how God designed things. It was, it, was, it was just how God designed things from the very beginning. Sin separates us from God. And not even the Son of God could miss that opportunity to be separated from his father when he became sin. And the emotion here is, is uncanny. So let's go back to Genesis. Now that we've seen that the... The impact of sin separates us from our Creator. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And once God has gone through denoting the punishment for man and woman and serpent, we pick it up in verse 22. Genesis 3, verse 22, When the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and to know evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And the thought just dies. The thought stops. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Notice God's absolute exasperation, his sadness and his emotion at having to evict his most prized creation from the paradise that he had created just for them. Why such emotion? Why such emotion? Let's not forget that he had previously created a spiritual set of beings called angels who were made from spirit, but given the gift of free moral agency. And one-third of these angels eventually chose to back the rebellion of Lucifer, and now God's perfect creation had an element of chaos in its midst. It is with this in mind, I believe, I believe that it is with this in mind that his emotion here becomes evident, where he says we simply cannot have an eat of this tree of life. Now that they've chosen to sin, we can't have an eat of this tree and live forever. We've, we've been down that road. We've had spiritual angels choose sin. 
We can't go down this road. These, these are our, our prized creations. This is what our entire plan revolves around these beings. We can't have this. We simply can't have this. We must separate ourselves from them for now because they have chosen another way. And so he banishes us for our own good from his presence. When we sin, there's separation from our creator. It is just a natural law that God instituted. But in doing so, in doing so he foreshadowed their second chance, the shedding of innocent blood to cover their shame. Because remember, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was from the very beginning of creation. And this wasn't some idea that sort of filtered through to Israel and started around the first Passover and started to filter through till all of a sudden Christ surprisingly came on the scene. This was a plan from the beginning of time. And while he had to banish us because he simply couldn't give us eternal life in the state of sin that we were in, for our own good he banished us. Remember the mercy seat covers the law in the, in the, in the Holy of Holies. He is a merciful God. And he foreshadows our second chance. Let's go back to the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3, Genesis 3. Now the serpent, kind of going back in, his, back in time, back in the story here, to the beginning of the story. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then, as we know, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They felt shame, and they decided they needed to be covered. They needed their shame to be covered. So they chose vegetation. They chose to sew fig leaves together to cover their shame. We won't read the next uh, seven or eight verses where God denotes his punishment and, and pronounces a sentence. Well, let's go back now to verse 21. We read verses 22 to 24. But there's a verse here, a small detail that is often overlooked. Once God renders his judgment, we're in verses 8 to 20. There's a small detail here that we read. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. Where did he get the tunics of skin to cover them? An animal had to be killed. He foreshadowed the shedding of blood to cover shame before he banished them from the garden. Because he, mercy always covers law. But the shedding of blood covers shame. It has from the very, very beginning covered shame. And this little verse here that we sometimes read over quickly, tunics of skin he made them to cover them. And then the process of saving them becomes the focus of the rest of history. He begins the process of mercy by shedding the innocent blood of an animal to create tunics to cover their shame. Vegetation doesn't work. 
It didn't work in, this, in the, the sacrifice that, or the offering that Cain gave. That's a other tangent. I don't want to get off in that tangent. But it's interesting that Cain offered vegetation. Abel offered, it a, Abel offered a lamb. Simple vegetation here as an offering didn't cut it for God in this particular case. When it comes to covering shame, it requires blood. And God himself had the first blood sacrifice by killing an animal and creating tunics to cover their shame. And then with sadness, he casts them out. Mercy first, but the law still stands. And then, with his emotion that he said here, that the emotion almost just trails off and he doesn't finish his sentence, the beginning of the salvation of mankind begins. The rest of the story. This salvation, the slaying of the, uh, the, the Lamb of God from the foundation of the world, that plan begins to take effect. What a merciful, merciful God that we serve. But again, why blood? This could have been done in easy. You would think of God's... The, everything that he created, he could have done it easier. It could have been an easier way to do this than blood. Why not vegetation? Why did it have to be blood? The impact of sin is so great, and a lesson that he has been trying to get across to mankind, trying to get mankind to understand, that from the very moment he created them, and down throughout the pages of history that we have here in our Bibles, sin separates us from our Creator. Being in accordance with his will is so crucial to being in his kingdom that, when, that God goes to extremes to teach us this lesson. Innocent blood, first of animals meant to serve us, then ultimately the innocent blood of his son would need to be shed so that our sin, our sins, which separate us from him, could be rendered forgotten. There is life in the blood. And we see that example we read earlier about a life for a life. He needed us to understand the impact of sin so much that he required a life for a life. Because without that, it wouldn't have the impact on us. You know what? We, we have to we give up. Uh, let's use the example of, of Lent, giving up something. You know, we give up something for a few days and we say a few things and, and everything's fine. It doesn't have the impact on us. Even the killing of an animal back in Old Testament times didn't have the impact because they still needed to do it again the next year. The killing of an innocent life, we can think back to, to how it would feel for those young, those, perhaps those young kids in Israel, that first Passover, where they were asked to choose an innocent lamb and keep it for four days. And you know how children are with, with animals. Having to care for this lamb and keep it perfect and protected for four days. And then God says, now you need to kill it drain its blood, or someone in your home dies. Imagine that impact. God chose life for a life because he cares so much about us that the impact of sin we needed to understand. One of life's greatest lessons is one that he's been trying to tell us from the beginning of time. There is life in the blood. Mankind has spent centuries learning more and more and more about blood. And what was once to classic Greeks just one of the four basic fluids produced in the human and used produced in and used by the human body has over the years come to be understood to being the key to life. We can live without many of our organs. We can get by with one kidney. We can have part of our liver cut off and it starts to grow back. Skin can be removed, whether 
by accident or on purpose through a skin graft, and yet it can grow back. We can even get by with a mechanical heart for a period of time. We can't do without blood. The entire removal from our, of our blood, sentence of death. Because there is life in the blood. There always has been life in the blood. From the very first time sin was committed by man, the blood of the innocent covered sin and allowed us to be reunited in part with our Creator. So let's close here with the words from the writer of Hebrews, who brings all of these concepts together, who over the course of history brings all these concepts together in answering the question of why blood was required in sacrifice to cover sin. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll read starting at verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. Again, life for life. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It is an eternal truth from the dawn of time. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens, copies of these things in the heavens, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So again, all of these lessons over the course of 4,000 years pointed to the time that this was all about from the start. The, sl the slaying of the lamb from the foundation of the world. It all pointed to there because we have to understand the impact of blood. We have to understand not that Christ came to save us, but why he had to shed his blood for our sins. Otherwise, we would just continue to sin. It wouldn't have an impact on us. For verse 24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, wasn't an annual where he just shed his blood so he could cover up the sin. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put himself away. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. He came once to become sin so that he could come again to be salvation for us. Tomorrow, when we take of the cup and drink, remember that there has always been life in the blood. There has always been life in the blood. And it is interesting in my, in my studies, as I didn't have this down, but remember this, the Hebrew word for blood, I forget what it is. It's a three-letter word, I think. Dam. Thank you very much. Another meaning of the word dam is the juice of the grape. 
But blood, it also means the juice of the grape. Something interesting. Thank you. When we take of the cup and drink tomorrow, remember that there has always been life in the blood. But we can be grateful and praise our Father for this eternal truth. That there is salvation and there is eternal life. That while there is life in the blood, there is eternal life in His blood. This podcast was brought to you by the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more, visit us on the web at cgiburlington.org.